story, famous story about Motown. Okay, no, what's the famous story? Oh, they had a Cadillac speakers in the fucking studio, <laughs> and the final mix downs were all done. They tested them on Caddy speakers because they're like, yo, this is the optimal, con- like, this is how we want yeah. our music to live in the world. Yeah. And so it should sound good out of Cadillac speakers. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, and like today's Cadillac is uh, Apple earbuds. <laughs> oh, that's depressing. Also, can you get more fucking Detroit? Yeah, no. I mean, it makes complete sense. It's so fitting. Uh, but it makes, but yeah, it's, it's, it's so Detroit, but it's also actually makes sense and it's practical. Wow. One thirty. already hitting the whiskey. What are you doing? A scotch? What are you, what are you doing? Bourbon, baby. I, Bur- I like didn't have any bourbon for the first two months of quarantine. And then I've gone through a bottle. Of, I like bought it and I was like, oh shit. I've really wanted to be drinking bourbon in the sunshine. And I've gone through most of the uh, bottle of bourbon in yeah, like a week. Yeah, you got a backyard. What, in- ca- what kind of bourbon are you drinking? Evan Williams? Nah, dude. Four Roses, the good shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. No, Four Roses is good. Yeah, it's good. It's good stuff. Four Roses is fine. Good. I mean, I'm a rye man normally, but mm, like somehow quarantine, I like wanted bourbon. You are listening to Money for Nothing, a podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird, and I'm with Sam Backer. And today we are not going to be talking about bourbon. We're going to be talking about Prince. Sam did a great interview with Matt Thorne, a writer and critic who has published many novels as well as a book on Prince, simply called Prince, The Man and His Music. And uh, instead of focusing on Prince's personal life, the book, if I understand correctly, really kind of focuses more on Prince's music with a critical eye. And you two in your interview really sort of dove into all things Prince, but particularly make an effort to trace Prince's career in a way that takes into consideration not only his music, but his like relationship to technology, distribution, promotion, artist control, which is really in some ways just as much of the Prince story and his legacy as his music, I would say, but like awfully not as talked about. Um, because like we're like we were saying how we even got on the start of this conversation, how we even begin to talk about Prince and that led to this episode is that I think we mentioned that when we were growing up, before we really knew much about music, I, and I think you as well, kind of associated Prince as this sort of weirdo who kept, who like changed his name to a symbol and was like constantly fighting with the record industry. And I didn't actually even know his music, but I knew that. Oh, it's the guy with a symbol. (laughs) Um, But before we hear that interview with Matt Thorne, let's talk a bit about what it means when an artist or their music is written about as Prince-like. Uh, the conversation, a conversation between you and I about a week ago, I was listening to the new Eve's tumor and I kind of mentioned a little loosely that it had a little Prince like swagger, which led us to the question of what it actually means when people say something sounds like Prince and really what they're talking about is a very specific period in Prince's career that kind of stops at what, 1991. And that's, yo, like 84. Yeah, like 85. Sure. Yeah. And that's kind of generally also how Prince is thought about in pop culture, you know, with a few exceptions, like, you know, the Super Bowl performance um, and some other things. But, you know, Prince continued to release albums and use new technologies and challenge forms of distribution and like figure out what this big bad Internet was about for decades. I guess a good place to start before we jump into the interview. Just what are some albums in the last 10 to 20 years that you feel like 
have been widely associated as sounding prince-like in this in this uh, very specific idea of what prince sounds like and is. I mean, there's a couple that come to mind to me as like being, and this again is filtered a lot of it through the music press. I mean, there's a couple, uh, like what, uh, like Beck's Midnight Vultures was definitely described to me and kind of presented to me as like a Beck does Prince album. Which is interesting because it came at a time where I think it's probably fair to say that Prince's popularity was pretty low on the pop culture consciousness. Yeah, I think Prince was as uncool as he ever was in like 1995. I don't think Prince ever got that uncool again. <laughs> so let me ask like what, you know, on Beck's Midnight Vultures, like pull, what, what's he pulling from there? Yeah, so he's pulling from this like synth heavy, groove heavy Prince. He's not pulling from Prince the guitar player. He's not pulling from anthemic Prince. Um, He's pulling from kind of like new wave that 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 the Prince's ability to somehow bring together funk and new wave and not just like fuse them, but like make a convincing argument that they were in fact the same thing, um, which is a fucking musical achievement by like one of many, but like one of his most impressive and Prince, uh, sorry, uh, and Beck, like, I think that's the Prince that Beck is pulling from this like specific vintage synthesizer groove prince and do you think that that's also part of the prince that we generally think about or people generally think about when they think of prince like that era yeah i do uh, but what's that, like pre-19 whatever 85 era whatever <laughs> yeah i mean honestly like 1999 is like a pretty good I'm trying to think of like what prince songs when people are like pulling from prince like what prince songs those actually sound like because like no, everyone knows when doves cry. No one sounds like when doves cry, but like, yeah, people sound like 1999, like it's that, like Kiss, bah, bah, and yeah, and Kiss. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, definitely, definitely. Another album that really sounds like it is uh, Outcast. The Love Below has like a very like Prince like element to it. It's a weird album, right? Like it, you. I mean, we all like know the fucking outcast story um they just arguably you know clear greatest of all time contenders in rap music you put them on your top five no one is gonna be like oh no i think that's ridiculous like that's a totally like standard top five call one of the first southern rappers to really make a big dent they fucking blow minds again and again and again and again and then they release this double album that is kind of them breaking up where they each release a you know put a, a full record um that this fucking weird ass double cd that's like upside down like so it's like right one way is facing one way and then it's backwards upside down the other way which means it's like a fairly this is like a very princey album and i think it, in of all the prince albums i've influenced albums i've heard maybe the one that sounds the most like an actual mid 80s prince album like if you listen to like music from um like christopher tracy's parade or like like if you listen to music from under the cherry moon which is a wild album i had not listened to previously <laughs> like a lot of the kinds of things that he's doing here like really referencing uh 
really referencing jazz, really referencing using pianos, using strings, multiple voices kind of pitched in different ways, skits and interludes that, I mean, that's a like classic hip hop trope, but like kind of making it a concept album. Um, the singing, the kind of half songs that he does, the fact that he played most of the instruments. Um, I mean, this is a pretty fucking princey record, I would say. Like, in the fullest sense of the word. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you make a lot of really great points there. And I think that when we talk about there being a very specific time period in which is often referenced when people say an album or artist is Prince-like and it being it not encompassing the entirety of Prince's career, I think that on the other side of things, um, I think what you're talking about here might actually be the most influential part of Prince and less. And so like, you know, when we think about his music, oftentimes people just think about, you know, unless you're a hardcore fan, you know, just think about or reference pre-1991, pre-1985, whatever you want to say. Uh, but actually this sort of these elements as persona artists, how they're presented, how they go about making an album, how they use technologies that in itself has probably had more of a lasting legacy than say, you know, whatever he like produced musically, you know, in uh, the eighties and, you know, uh, a toe dip into the nineties. And I think another artist like pushing the conversation forward to a more uh, contemporary artist is Janelle Monet doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, for one, like Prince is deeply involved in Janelle's career. Like, closely consults with her on making all of her records. And no, and Janelle's really interesting. I, like, really feel very lucky that I got to spend some more time with Janelle Monet's like, music and, um, uh, her music and also just some sort of the, 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 the multimedia and, like, narrative around her music. Um, because I, I think that, uh, and again, in a way that is very influenced by Prince, this idea of, an artist as being a musical artist, but also having a larger set of like narrative ideas and like symbolic ideas and like aesthetics floating around them that are an integral part of what they're doing means that I think coming from a very cursory listen, which is what I gave certainly the first two albums and then maybe a little bit more, the most recent one, Dirty Computer, um, you miss a lot. But there's actually a lot there in this very Prince-like way that is not readily apparent. And in some ways, it, it's, it's tricky because Prince is able, and then we're here we can talk about the music industry a little bit, right? Prince is able, because of this amazing fucking contract with Warner Bros., because he's managed to be a huge breakout star, because he's given a runway of four albums before he has to really hit it big, is able to build this all-encompassing world. And I think it's a little bit harder for an artist to do that now, especially an artist who's also trying to play the pop game. Like, I think you can be a cult artist and just release a lot of stuff and kind of have listeners in your own little universe. But again, I think in a way that's very true to Prince and, and true to a lot of things, I think Janelle like, wants a broad listenership. And I think that a, a lot of the music... A lot, especially a lot of the music on, on Dirty Computer, again, the most recent album, and, and uh, I think in, in the critical consensus. I mean, I, I liked it better than the, the first couple. It, it, it can be a tricky negotiation, right? That unlike Prince, who's rewriting the rules of pop music, um, and we can talk about 
what specifically allowed him the space to do that. Again, I think if we're talking going back to that like new wave slash funk moment that he's able to cross into white audiences and then build a space for himself, that Janelle is not able to rewrite the rules of pop while still being taken seriously as a legible pop star in the same way. So she has to do more negotiations, I think, with like what is a mainstream pop sound? What could get played on the radio? In a time where radio formats are a lot more restrictive, a lot fewer songs are be playing, in, in which the industry is a lot more consolidated. And I mean, we should just mention also the fact that, you know, being a young black woman who has identified as pansexual, but I think we could also say queer. Yeah, it could make, it, make those things also a little bit more difficult for her. Yeah, no, and, and so I think that, that musically, um, those negotiations are, are mad tricky, right? Like, uh, also because, like, you know, being prince after prince has happened means that you're referencing something more classicist. Um, and there's definitely a classicist impulse in a lot of this music. Like, uh, the, May, the Way You Make Me Feel, um, which is one of the best songs from that, that album, um, has, like, that, that kiss guitar thing, has some, like, really cool kind of, like, shape, uh, like pitch bending almost parts on the chorus. Like it's a killer song. But again, I think her success with that song reflects the challenge of what it seems like her task is in terms of bringing together these disparate strands. And it's like a fucking mountain to climb. I think she does a really amazing job of it. I mean, oh, I mean, the other thing that's interesting about her career and that in some ways is the flip side of Beck almost and again reflects like the change in time periods between the 90s and the present day which is that her music her first couple albums are there's this like character of this like android character that she is portraying that's this uh, very clear creation which is um it's, it's kind of a an imaginary character again in a way that's very much prince-like and in some ways, her most recent album, she sheds that character. Uh, she came out as, as queer. She's being much more personal. And in some ways, it gives you a sense of kind of the changing stakes of authenticity and how we think about authenticity and how we think about Prince in general, right? That Prince was seen in the 90s as like a reference to be grabbed. And Prince is seen in the early 2000s maybe as kind of this like, vision of a forward thinking um like black male performer like lover man but not like ja rule lover man right right <laughs> and that prince's very shape-shifting qualities i think that made him like a good fit for like 90s pastiche in today's world where like intersectionality is a way that a lot of people are thinking and creating art instead of seeming inauthentic the fact that prince is like a whole bunch of different things all at once actually makes him like a paragon of cultural authenticity and so it makes sense more so than even his music yeah more so than even his music or independent of his music um so it kind of makes yeah, independent of his, yeah. yeah maybe so it kind of makes sense to a certain extent that like some ways what could seem like the least princey move which is making a very personal record about that i mean it's there's still sci-fi elements there's still a lot of complicated things but making a record that is portrayed and, and is a much more personal statement which would seem unprincey actually is in some ways in this present day moment, the most princey thing you can do. Cause then you can like embody that multiplicity in the way that Prince was able um, to 
in the 80s. So with that, I think that we'll now hear Sam's great interview with writer Matt Thorne, uh, author of many books, but specifically the book Prince, The Man and His Music is what you two will be talking about. And here's the interview. So so just to, to start with, how did you first get interested in Prince, in his music and, and in his story? It's, I think the first time I ever heard Prince was... Um, my mother had a, a cassette. Um, they did one of these things. It was a sort of proto version of, of those sort of now compilations. It was where they would put together a few chart hits on a, on a, on a cassette. Um, and I think Purple Rain was on that, that cassette. And then later on, uh, a, a friend in school had, had Purple Rain. Um, and, uh, and, I heard, and I heard that. But it wasn't the thing that really got me into him and really started the sort of lifelong obsession was um buying sign of the times when it came out um but then going and really enjoying it loving it i mean the single first and then the album but then going to uh a record shop and uh the uh, the guy at the record shop saying to me you know that isn't the full story there's a whole bootleg of of, of songs he didn't put on there and it was this early bootleg uh which was called royal jewels and so he gave me this, uh, or I bought from him rather, <laughs> it wasn't pure charity. I bought from him this, uh, this bootleg recording and it was just discovering that all the references or lots of the references in Sign of the Times had these secret references to other songs. So that when on Sign of the Times, he sings about going to the Crystal Ball, then discovering that there was a whole song called Crystal Ball that had a 40 piece orchestra on it. Um, and that was really the beginning. And so I think at the time, I mean, I was about 12 or 13 and at the time, there was still a kind of sense, maybe more in England than America, um, that music had to sort of fight to be taken seriously or, or as seriously as it is now. And I remember reading, really loving Sign of the Times, but not thinking that, that, that it would have it, having that much of a cultural impact. And then reading a rave review in the, in the Times and then just realising you know, that it was possible to think about music in the same way that it was, that you could think about literature or film or other mediums. Um, and, and that really opened everything up for me from, from then on. So, so it was, but, but the, 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 the thought that was in the back of my head for years before I wrote the book and what prompted me to write the book was thinking about how his music changed between um, Sign of the Times, Love Sexy, and then Graffiti Bridge, of what the Batman soundtrack and Graffiti Bridge, but thinking about how the music on those various albums was so different and it didn't seem to fit together. It felt like a jigsaw. And so I always wondered, you know, not at that point, not really delving too deep into the backstory, how somebody could just move through so many different styles and so many different qualities of recording and qualities of, of lyric writing uh, in such a fast period. So I always wanted to sort of dig deeper into that. And it was always a sort of amateur concern. And I, you know, and I went to see him live. I saw him from the Love Sexy tour onwards and saw him every possible time I, I, I could and bought all the records and went back and listened to all the ones I hadn't listened to and listened to all the bootlegs. And, you know, it was always a sort of had a, a, a pretty strong interest in him. But it wasn't really until I started thinking about writing the book about him that, I, that, that those questions became something I really wanted to get to the root of. So, so what was the format of that? bootleg um so the bootleg it was a triple vinyl box set um and it had a lot of the songs that didn't make it onto sign of the times and it had a lot of the songs 
that hadn't made it on to, or some of the songs hadn't made it on to Purple Rain and some of the songs at the time that he'd given to the family and other bands, but with him doing them. So they were demos. and But almost as interesting to me as the songs themselves was the way it was presented. So on the back of this this box set, it had a, a story about, um, or a true story about how Prince stayed up all night, recorded all night, had recorded a lot of these songs in the middle of the morning, um, had his band on constant call so they could come and rehearse and play with him at a moment's notice. And I, I'm primarily a novelist. And when I was younger, I, uh, I used to write my novels quite late at night. I mean, it's different now. I have children. But in those days, the most creative time for me was generally about from about 11 o'clock at night till four in the morning. And so it was, it was kind of that nocturnal creativity that really that I found really exciting, even from an early age, because it was the idea that not only was he creating this stuff, but he had all these musicians on call that were all available to to show up in the in the middle of the night to uh, you know to help him record these songs. And I mean, a part of it was exaggeration because a lot of the time it was just him and the engineer in the studio. But there were lots of times when he was getting everybody at a moment's notice into the studio to record songs in the middle of the night. So it was part of the creative process that the myth of or the not the myth, but the story of the creative process that really captured my imagination as well. It's wild that they were pressing up vinyl bootlegs. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and it was really, you know, it was really a beautiful uh, piece of uh, piece of work. You know, it was a it was a, a three vinyl box set with a with a really beautiful cover image uh, taken from live performance. It was a sort of red picture with him with a, holding a rose and singing into a microphone. You know, with all this story on the background, with all these songs. And I mean, it was presented in in a slightly haphazard way because in those days, you know, the bootleggers were sort of were getting. I mean, I don't know the full. Even the whole time I was asking people when I was writing the book about bootlegs, there was never quite a full story because obviously nobody really wants to acknowledge how and when that that happened. So nobody nobody could really explain to me exactly how those bootlegs came out onto the market. But um, some people said that, and I think this is probably the closest to the truth of it, was that. Prince was always making cassettes of his songs and giving them to engineers or to girlfriends or sometimes, you know, hiring a car and leaving the car, leaving the, the cassette in the car or, you know, so it, the music had kind of leaked out in various ways. And clearly people were putting it together without really having a sense of how it all exactly fitted together. But that was almost more interesting in itself, you know, the way that you it was getting a, another layer of all this mysterious stuff. So you had the album, which was a patchwork of, of various eras, and then you had the bootleg, which was pat- like patchwork of various eras, and then there was loads more stuff beyond that. So, you know, I mean, that's the thing about Prince is that he was releasing for most of his life, you know, between 10 and 15 songs a year, and on a, on a good year, maybe 30 or 40. But he was recording... Uh, he claimed a song every day. I mean, I think that was a bit of an exaggeration, but I think he probably did record at least 250 songs a year or not, if not more, most years. So we're only ever really getting the tip of the iceberg. and We're only really getting a bit of the story. And and to, to this day, I find it quite frustrating that the the estate hasn't yet quite worked out how to put out a lot of this stuff. So I, I kind of feel that with my book, you know, I was telling the story in as complete a way as I possibly could. So I wanted to get absolutely everything that was out there, but also everything that was circulating as a bootleg or, you know, was available. But that's still only not the full story, you know. So I, I still feel that there's probably going to be quite a lot to be said about Prince in the future. But since his death, not that much stuff has come out and it hasn't really been put out in a way that I would particularly like it to be put out. So I, I think... 
you know the the, the full story of 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 Prince's career and life. You know, it might be fifty years or even a hundred years before we get the absolutely full story. I mean, I think I think he's such a significant figure that people will be looking back as we do now on you know romantic poets or Shakespeare or or Mozart or you know whoever it is and really sort of piecing together with ever more forensic detail hopefully the 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 stories of of his career no i i actually um i worked with a uh a, a woman once whose family was from the twin cities um oh yeah and uh her and this is where you get like is this true but her cousin <laughs> had a one night stand with prince <laughs> mm-hmm. and as she was leaving she was like this is a one night stand it's never going to happen again he left to go to the bathroom and she grabbed one of the many cassette tapes kind of littered around <laughs> the the bedroom and kind mm-hmm. of put it in her purse. And um, my coworker was like, and we were just like blasting that cassette tape. Everyone in the family got it, <laughs> a copy of it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. We were listening, and some of those songs still haven't come out. <laughs> well, no, I think, that's, I think that's true. I mean, and also, you know, with all the engineers and collaborators as well, there was... Shortly after he died, there was a bit of a scandal where one of the engineers put out this thing that I think was called something like the Man Opera. I, had, I mean, it wasn't a particularly great title, but, you know, it was these, un, these unreleased songs that nobody really knew about that he'd recorded with, with Prince and he wanted to release them and he felt he could. Uh, it turned out he couldn't. And I mean, it would have been obvious, really should have been obvious that he couldn't from day one. But, but you know, so he, he was somebody who just worked with Prince, you know, had five or six songs with him and Prince never really appeared to do anything with that you know he just sort of that was just another day for him or a week and and off he went and and I think you know that that's that's true of the way he worked as well that there's a kind of haphazardness to it you know that he was recording these songs and sometimes they were very important to him and and sometimes they weren't so some of the engineers that I interviewed said that you know in, in and I think this was borne out after his death was that he sort of saw them almost as old canvases that he'd take out and, and paint over, you know, that he would often destroy pieces of music that we would consider really important. You know, he would just record over the top of them. And, and I think that's one of the things that, that has taken so long, reasons why it's taking so long for some of the stuff to, to come out properly from the, the vault is just itemising it and realising what's, what's there. Um, but at the same time, the thing about Prince was, I don't know, I always have two impulses. I mean always in life really there's sort of two two contradictory impulses and i think any i mean as a i'm thinking now as a writer more than a critic but i think anybody who creates anything you have this desire to to uh preserve and 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 to create your work and get it out there and get it published but equally you have a there's sometimes you just think to hell with it you know and you just want to work on something and you and you're not really you know, you want to throw something away or you, you know, you, you, you want to do something radical with something or you want to dig something out that you worked on 10 years ago and start working on it again. And, and, and you know, and it's sort of when it when those impulses, that kind of archivist or, or librarian impulse runs contrary to, to some of Prince's instincts, which were, you know, it doesn't matter if a record was recorded 20 years ago and, it, and he puts it out now. It just meant it wasn't finished for 20 years. And I think that's, you know, that that's something that makes a lot of his work so exciting to listen to. Whereas if you or as you're beginning to have now where people go, you know, the exact dates when something came out or the exact dates when they were recorded and this song goes with that song. It, that is an interesting academic exercise. But at the same time, 
the most important thing I think is is the actual albums that he released. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you kind of pointed like a fascinating contradiction that I really got in this book that I hadn't grasped before, which is this funny thing where at one level, he's someone who's famous for meticulous control over his music, over his image, over the distribution of this music. And at the same time, like you said, these albums, um, you know, some of them are really tightly planned, but some of them kind of feel like there's multiple configurations and almost when he decides the album's finished is, is um, it can feel remarkably impulsive for someone who, who uh, the question of control is so important to his art. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, there are some, I think what you're saying is true, but it also plays into some of the, the sort of myths around him in a way, you know, it's that sense that I think he was, I mean, I, well, I suppose what I'm saying is this notion of him being a control freak. I mean, he was in life and he was in business and maybe that's something we'll come on to later. But as an artist, he was aware, I mean, that was his brilliance, is that complete control isn't going to get you anywhere. You know, that, so sometimes he did play every instrument on an album and he did record it completely alone. But other times he would give a song to some of the people working around him, say most famously Wendy and Lisa, and he'd go, here's this song, work on it see what you can do with it. And they would do something with it that would fascinate him and that would inspire him to go off and do something else. And I think that's the the nature of music and how it's different from writing, although maybe similar from film, is that, you know, with music, you have to have a degree of improvisation from the people around you. That's often when the best stuff comes. So his genius was to be able... It wasn't just the idea that sometimes people push that, uh, that you know, he was him all alone in the studio and that was his brilliance. You know, it it was also the fact that he was able to be open to other people and could decide at different points of his career, now I need to put a band together and go out on the road and do this, you know, and at other times he was fed up of that and wanted to get rid of everybody and, 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 and record on his own. Um, so, and then with this, with this sort of sense of, of how he composed records, uh, it did. I did sort of get a sense. I mean, this doesn't completely hold true for the entire career, but this was the closest I could kind of get to a sense of 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 a kind of um, a sense of what he would generally do with an album, which was that he would start off when he didn't have much inspiration by going through his old music and seeing if there was anything that sparked any ideas, and then he would take one song or two songs and he'd record a few more and he'd see if those songs hung together. And there are lots of, I mean, a lot of those uh, uh, unreleased songs or, or bootlegs and stuff came from when he was putting two or three songs together and deciding either he didn't like any of those songs or they didn't work together as a piece. And he would have records and sometimes they'd even have cover art. Like he had this album called Madrid to Chicago, which had two or three songs for. He got his cover designer to, to, to work up a cover. Then he decided he didn't like it. So that went into the vault and he started again. But generally, once he had two or three songs, then they would inspire a few more. And in the early part of his career, particularly when he was working with with Warner Brothers, he might then play it to his manager or people he trusted. And they would generally say, OK, that sounds great, but maybe you need a couple of hits or a couple of, you know, a couple more obvious singles. And he would record the singles towards the end of the process so that 1999, for example, he would record after he'd, he'd done the rest of the record um, in order to give it to give it. Uh, uh, I think it was that. And and or a little red corvette that he he recorded at the end of the process to to give it that lift so um so that was the sort of process start off with the past then add a bit more um and then when it seems to have a coherent whole and you can see the whole he would then sit down and write the final songs that would that would make it 
um, that would give it its, its success. And then as he went on and he didn't have those kind of people around him, he still followed more or less the same process, but he was less concerned with writing the hits apart from when he just signed a new deal with a, with a different label. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things that's, that's um, really interesting about that whole process is how central technology was, it sounded like, to his entire vision of recording and, and his vision of, of, of his art in general, right? This kind of move that he had this vault that he was constantly able to go back to it, that he was constantly recording, that he could kind of play with the songs as texts um, in a way that I feel like uh, uh, not many artists in that period did. Uh, and, and, and in a way that actually is much more, it, it, you know, it's very, it, it's very much um, a mode that musicians work in now, it seems like. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, very much so. So I think, you know, like he'd get a new synthesizer or a new bit of, of computer, a new computer program or a new system. And then he would he would write, you know, 10 songs just testing out that technology, you know. So so and then there would I mean, that's sort of what um, particularly when, you know, dance music artists, uh, techno, things like that, um, have taken from him has been, you know, the sound of a particular synthesizer or the sound of a particular piece of technology. Um, and he was always using them in weird ways as well. He wasn't using them in a conventional way. So once he created that sound, quite often some people would come along and borrow that sound for their for their own work. But he'd also try all these different experiments with the sound in order to get all these different songs, even though it might just be one that he'd end up using. Um, and then later on in his life, it didn't really kind of hit him too much. I mean, in terms of the technology dating and things like that, until about the year... 2000 and then that was when he was getting stuff out of the um out of the archive and out of the vault including technology at that point he was bringing out old synthesizers and things like that and he just reached the point where they couldn't be repaired or the sounds weren't quite compatible um and that was where and that's one of the reasons why people got upset about the idea of him revisiting old material later on in his career is that they liked the sound of the early recordings and, and the way it sounds is very important to, to Prince's music. And maybe they didn't like the sounds at a different period. But that's true of all musicians. You know, it's like the way that people don't like, say, Bob Dylan's music in the 80s or, or you know, or, or Neil Young in the 80s. You know, that, that, that sense that musicians who are from a different era and we do associate Prince most strongly, I think, with the 80s, even though, you know, he produced some of his best music in the 90s and beyond um when he doesn't sound like like the 80s uh and is too close to a particular era um that's when his work people sort of feel critical about his work i mean the the main the biggest example of that i think is the sort of the stuff around 96 when he started getting influenced by um stuff like r kelly and and new jack swing and and and, and sort of musicians that uh, were in a way kind of a, um, a, owed so much to him already. So he's borrowing stuff from people who'd borrowed stuff from him and it didn't quite all fit together. But even that's interesting. Another thing that really came out in this uh, book that was really interesting was, was the sense of the, the real separation of record markets in the U.S. and listenership markets in the U.S. at this period of time. And, and that's something that um, I, I think for, for, for me who came, came of age um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, post-hip-hop being the dominant kind of music in the United States, it's hard to wrap my head around a little bit. 
but there's this real sense that there's amazing part uh, in the book where, you, where he's like, uh, he reaches out to, I think, like a major promoter. And they assume that the promoter will not have heard of Prince because he mostly does like white acts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's funny if you go back in, in history sort of further still, you, you, you get someone like Chuck Berry, you know, who, who um, I don't know if how he's sort of perceived by the masses now, but, it, but at the time, at least, he self-consciously and deliberately combined what he saw as black and white music. So he saw he saw he, he was taking um, a black sound and which was coming from jazz uh, and what was referred to then as R&B, although I think in some ways they would just see it as, as, as early rock and roll and combining it with country music that was that was a sort of white sound um, and doing that in order to get to uh, as big a crossover audience as as possible. Um, and so for quite a long time, I mean, and, you know, and, you know Little Richard, who died, uh, sadly, uh, a, a few days ago, uh, again, he was, a, he was a sort of black musician and, and a huge inspiration to Prince, um, whose music was then being played by white musicians in order to get to the, to the chart, into the charts. Obviously, we have a slightly different situation by the time Prince arrives, but he is doing two quite radically different things to begin with. You know, the first album, For You, would be seen as very much a, a a black album because it's 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 soul music in a way and it's and it's got a very black sound and it's similar to other records by black musicians at the at the time and um and maybe also even with the second album as as well but then he sort of moved into new wave that was that was popular at the time and not particular although there were some black new wave artists that was much more of a a sort of white sound um, and then obviously with um, with Purple Rain, that was the big breakthrough. And that was where he was really heading towards a, a white audience and using music from, again, from weirdly from country music was something that inspired him. But also seeing people, you know, big stadium rockers and wanting to have similar uh, stadium appeal. Um, but I, you know, I, I mean, I think it was I mean, I think there is some parallels between Prince and Chuck. Barry in this, you know, he was never wanting to just appeal to just to black people or just to white people. You know, he wanted to appeal to everybody and, and he wanted to have black and white people in his band. And he wanted to, I mean, the, the one of the other obvious influences for, for that was Sly and the Family Stone, you know, another band with a with 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 black and white members in the in the band. Um, and one of the great things about Prince's music and where he was breaking down barriers in in that time in the early years at least was you know this idea that it didn't matter whether you were black or white it didn't matter whether you were straight or gay it didn't matter whether you were a man or a woman there was acceptance for all and every and a great sense of equality um but that was something that that sort of emerged in his music it wasn't there right from the beginning and and I mean clearly it's impossible to kind of um to know but I mean how maybe this isn't a fair question but how intentional I mean were let's say, some of the rock moves that he starts incorporating. Um, how intentional was that to reach a different audience, you think? Uh, I don't think it was intentional to reach a different audience. I think it was just the, the nature of, of his listening. So, I mean, he grew up listening to Larry Graham, to um, Tower of Power, to Sly and the Family Stone, to Stevie Wonder. And he was sort of following their models to a certain extent. Um, and you can hear, and, 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 oh, I mean, um, Shaka Khan as well was, her work with Rufus was a, 
was a huge influence, early influence on him. And those influences stayed pretty steady throughout his career. Santana as well as another one. Um, but what happened was when he signed to Warner Brothers, they sent him or he requested copies of, of all of their the records that they were putting out. And then he was listening to them and hearing people like Frank Zappa um, and also uh, Des Dickerson, who was another member of the revolution, was playing him uh, music like The Cars. Uh, and so he was hearing all this sort of new wave stuff and rock stuff. And then, because he's an incredibly competitive man, wanted to, to be better than all those artists as well. So I don't think it was a question of him self-consciously. The only time I think there was any kind of conscious decision was with Purple Rain. But before that, I, I think it was much more natural and it was much more the, the sense that he was being exposed to different music by the people around him. And then when he started working with Wendy and Lisa, they played him a lot more classical music and they played him uh, certain types of, of jazz that he hadn't heard before, Bill Evans being the main one. Um, and then when he, because as I was saying, that Rufus was a huge influence, he, he then wanted to work with... Um, Claire Fisher, who'd done the arrangements. So I think it was kind of an organic process. The only time I think there was any kind of conscious move was with Purple Rain. And I think that wasn't so much just to win over a, a white audience, but that was just like, at that point, he wanted to rule the world. You know, that was where he was like, he wanted to beat everybody. That, that's, that, that the story about getting all the Columbia, or sorry, Warner Brothers releases is fascinating because I mean I, I do feel like there's this amazing thing about Prince um, and, and you referred to this earlier is that his career is such a music business career right it's not that he's like yeah, a yeah. fan and a struggling artist it's that from very early he's in this the world of this industry and that the idea that his listening wasn't to a certain extent filtered through his label is fascinating yeah 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 I mean I just you know he just wanted to get every Lay every record the label was putting out and 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 know it inside out and to to compete with it and he did that again later i mean he 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 sort of did whenever he sort of started to become insecure about things he sort of went on these periods of listening so he did it again with hip-hop after you know after he sort of didn't really understand rap early on and didn't really uh uh, took a long time to be able to compete with it and deal with it and but it's not always the case that he doesn't sort of listen to all of it and in assimilate it. So, for example, with hip-hop, the huge influence on him, the one that he really liked, was uh, Digital Underground. So, you know, he was listening to it all and rejecting a lot of it and then thinking, OK, well, Digital Underground, he could see a link between their music and his music. So, so they became very important for him. And then again, much later on in his career with 3121, that was another period where he was determined to have a chart hit again. And so he was going out and listening to everything that was in the charts and trying to write something that was similar. Um, and then, and, and in the mid nineties as well, you know, he was listening to TLC and, and um, Dallas Austin, he became uh, very interested in because he'd produced a, a Madonna record he liked. So it, it wasn't something that was consistent. Uh, I think with Prince's musical tastes, you know, he's got the taste he had at the beginning of his, career they stayed the same until he died but at certain periods of his life he had sort of what I would call competitive listening and, and started thinking about that and sometimes it was what was in the charts and it was the like in that case that I that I um, mentioned to you and at other times it was just that he wanted to you know I don't know compete with the Rolling Stones, say, or Led Zeppelin, or 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 uh, or the Beatles, you know, and so then he would go on a on a a sort of uh, 
a program of listening to 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 that music. Yeah, so I do want to talk about hip hop in a second because I think that that's um, sure. absolutely crucial to to one of the things that we're we're trying to do in this episode, which is just to think about how think about how Prince is thought of, kind of in the musical imagination. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, before that, I mean, I want to just talk a little bit about for me, uh, and it's nice to hear that that this was kind of your core interest in the book. Uh, for me, the real, the, the biggest pleasure was sort of the trip you take us through these remarkably productive, what, like second half of the 80s years. And just the, the, the amount of music, like you kind of sent me down a YouTube rabbit hole. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good. I had never heard Crystal Ball before. That is a very weird 10 minute yeah, song. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, my girlfriend walked in as I was listening to it and was just like, what? Like, what <laughs> are you doing? <laughs> and why is it so loud? <laughs> <laughs> um yeah sorry carry on oh no 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 so i was just wondering if you talk it was, it's extraordinary that the, the richness and complexity and oddness and, and range of this period of, of prince's music yeah so i mean this is when I, you know when i was speaking at the beginning about um what what you know first discovering prince's music i mean that crystal ball song for example um so it's the sort of, you know, the first time I heard Crystal Ball, it was on vinyl. It was a sort of muffled uh, recording of it. Um, and I was listening, I mean, like you said with your, your girlfriend, I was thinking, you know, what on earth is this? Um, but I didn't realise the complexity of it because I was just hearing this, you know, slightly sort of degraded recording of it. Um, when I was writing the book and I spoke to, I mean, I sort of knew this already, but finding out from Claire Fisher, uh, son Brent, that... Um, you know, it's a 40 piece orchestra and that was a whole day of, of recording. Um, and then, you know, he went back and added all the other stuff on, on top of it. And at the time he thought it was the most important thing he'd ever recorded. Um, it's quite, you've got to do sort of a lot of mental gymnastics to go from all of these musicians at the absolute top of their game, you know, being paid thousands and thousands of pounds to do this incredible session um, and then it ending up as a, a only available on a on a on a bootleg, you know. So so I mean, it did come out later, or a version of it came out later. But for for ten years, you know, we didn't know anything about that. You know, we just had this weird song and didn't it, you know didn't really understand how this had come about. And nobody else does that. You know, people talk about Bob Dylan not releasing some of his best songs, which is true. You know. Um, or Neil Young or whatever, but nobody else spends that much money on something that just, and that much time and effort onto something and then just throws it away and doesn't even, you know, doesn't even think about it for years, you know. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's what makes Prince unique. And also, you know, he would do similar things, like, you know, he'd make whole films or, or you know, or sort of, I mean, not massive Hollywood productions, but, but you know, he would film uh, a bit more than home movies. You know, he'd spend a lot of money on them and just put them on the shelf as well. You know, that, so it's that kind of constant creativity quite often without really any real sense of is it commercial is it useful what's it going to do you know it, it it it's it's a real inspiration i mean it, this is also a point where the technology um really changes the kind of music he's making i feel like uh, especially something like crystal ball which is like you know purple rain is songs like i feel like uh yeah sign of the time is songs for the most part but the like crystal ball is not a song exactly no it's a i mean it's a i guess it's closest to a kind of i don't know a classical suite or a or a, or a part of a, a classical 
sweet, but with all that weird space age stuff going on as well. I mean, yeah, no, it's absolutely uh, extraordinary. I mean, I don't think there's anything really that um, that that there are other songs that are maybe better, but there's nothing that comes close to it in his in terms of ambition in his career, really, uh, with a few maybe more obscure exceptions. Um, but, uh, you know, that was the point he was at. He was thinking, right, OK, well, I've, you know, I've really captured, you know, I mean, he, you know, he'd sold millions and millions of copies. He was a he was a household name. And that was the point where his artistic ambition was was at its greatest, you know. Um, and, and, you know, even I mean, the thing is, you know, with that book, I, I really delve deep about the making of, of Crystal Ball. And, I, you know, I understand it completely. But in terms of what was actually went into it, but in terms of the thought process that led to that, you know, I don't think anybody really knows what was behind that. Yeah, I mean, to me, it also, it reminds me a little bit of of dance music, of like early Detroit yeah, no, techno. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, a lot of that came from that. I mean, that was the era where, um, you know, a lot of the... I mean, that was, you know, on, on Sunday Times when he was singing Housequake, it was kind of a, a, a slap to the, the Chicago house scene at the time, you know, because he felt that, you know, they were borrowing, and they were, you know, they were all, you know, all, almost all the, uh, the the early techno and house musicians were Prince fanatics. I mean, it's very rare to find anybody in the electronic mu music field who doesn't love Prince. I mean, and, and you know, I mean... You're you're probably a bit young to to have experienced this, or maybe maybe you saw the tail end of it. But certainly, reading the music press in the eighties and nineties, um, Prince's name would be in every issue. You know, it wouldn't it? Would just you know, it was no matter whether it was a guitar band or a or an electronic artist or you know or um, whoever it was, they would either mention Prince as someone they loved, or they would Prince would be mentioned as a as a reference point. You know, he really was. Um, incredibly significant in in dance particularly in a way that no other big mainstream artist uh was and 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 i also i mean some of the those really some of the really fascinating music from that period it also it feels like that interest in technology that shapes these songs that are you know almost sweets they kind of expand and contract these rhythmic patterns underneath them it feels like he also took it really advantage of, of various kind of means of um of releasing this music these maxi singles and remixes and yeah yeah uh videos yeah again i mean that that was another factor that started making me want to want to uh to write the book was you know just the uh, you know it was another that was another side along with the bootlegs that was another way of seeing of seeing the the kind of hidden side of uh, of prince was that you know you wouldn't just go and buy the single you know there'd be like a 12 inch with something like like the, like the b side of um so in the Times, for example, la 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 he he he, which was the sort of ten or eleven minute mix, um, which sounded like nothing on earth, you know. And again, this was another another layer of it, uh, and it, I mean, and you just see how his mind was working, you know. Just so like you you'd hear something like thieves in the temple, and then there would be the thieves in the house mix or something, you know. It was just sort of all of these ideas were in there as well, you know. And and it wouldn't just be like one or two versions of it. There'd be six, seven, eight, nine. 10 versions of these songs and then other ones again that weren't weren't released so there was always a sense that you had to pay close attention to 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 prince um and if you had an album that you didn't particularly like it was always worth checking out the 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 12 inches because maybe there was something there that would be really exciting 
So what you have in this period is he releases an almost unbelievable amount of music in this kind of complexity and oddness and success. And then at the same time, and I think this is really critical for kind of for, for how his, his reputation and his image have, have evolved, you have hip hop happening. And I think he's not alone in this, um, in that, you know, electro hip hop, you know, early 80s hip hop and Prince seem like they make sense to each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But once you have NWA or once yeah. you have um, the beginnings of gangster rap in, in the 90s, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. like the musical floor of black America shifts radically and it shifts to an era, you know, the samples that they're using in those records are earlier than Prince. They're often yeah. pre-synthesized. I mean, so it's yeah, yeah. very electronic music in that it's being made completely in a studio without live musicians, but it's often very analog in the sources it's taking. And, and I feel like Prince really struggled to deal with that sea change. Yeah. I mean, and it's, well, it's a complicated story. I mean, I think there's a version of it where the, a lot of the people that I interviewed would 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 put forward that you know that he Prince wasn't connected to the street at the time. He didn't understand what was going on, and it took him a while to get his to get his uh, um, understanding of that era up. But at the same time, you've got to remember that almost all of those hip hop musicians loved Prince, you know, and they were sampling him. You know, I mean, it, it you know they were uh, there was I mean, and then you know, or making reference to him like ice cube you know would want, uh, would make reference to him in a song you know and then prince later would sample nwa on a on, on an album himself so it wasn't a case that, that he was totally left behind by these musicians i think it was just that he um it took him a while to catch up i suppose is the best way of putting it i mean the, the, one of the prince's blind spot is musical ability so he doesn't feel that certain musicians that, uh, you know, that lots of people would like, whether it's in hip hop or in alternative music, say, if they aren't good players to his way of seeing things, then he doesn't admire them. And I think there was a little bit of, of that kind of snobbery when he started to hear hip hop and he started to, to hear it being celebrated. But, you know, it ends up, you know, he ended up his last album was on Tidal, you know, he had a good relationship with Jay-Z. Uh, he had, you know, he met an enormous amount of, of hip-hop stars throughout the era. And, you know, whoever you, you, you care to mention, they are, again, they either make reference to Prince or they have some sort of relationship with him at some point or, you know, there's a homage to him or, from, or to him from them later on. I mean, he, he I mean, when I, when I went to his house, um he was playing uh Kanye um Gold Digger, you know, Kanye West Gold Digger. So, you know, he, he still had an ear for a for a hit and he could hear that in hip hop. But I think the early years of I think the thing was that the early years of hip hop, he probably regarded it as a bit primitive. Um well primitive is the wrong word, you know, a bit simplistic. And then when he got into it and he heard what could be done. And also when he sort of surrounded himself with his own rappers, um, then I think he got really into it. You know, I mean, there's a slight problem. I mean, well, some people have criticized some of the, the rappers that he used on his own music, but I, you know, I, I, and they have suggested, for example, that they could have found 
different people to work with him. But I feel that he didn't want to be overshadowed by people who already had their reputations elsewhere. You know, he did work a little bit with other rappers, but I think most of the rappers that he that he brought up were people that were that he was working with for the the first time or relatively early on in their in their career. And I think that's, you know, that's just the nature that was the true of all the musicians he worked with throughout his career. He liked he wasn't somebody who wanted to put together session musicians or wanted to, to take other people's talent. I mean, he did he did collaborate with some big name, you know, Eve uh, he collaborated with and there were various other rappers he collaborated with. But really, he wanted to to sort of create his own version of hip hop, I guess. I mean, I also think hip hop is interesting because, you know, as much as he, he struggled in his, you know, his music in response to it, I also feel like it's a, a, a the point at which Prince as a musical figure gets um, gets caught a little bit. Um, that there starts, I feel like, being moving from that kind of a Prince influences every single person in the late 80s to this very specific vision of yeah. who Prince was and what he sounded like and what that music sounded like. And maybe this is the way of all these things, but really compresses the, the enormous diversity of what we've, we've been talking about, especially in that, that late 80s period. That also, the, the, the name change thing happened at this point and I think was also really critical for how people were understanding him maybe uh, oh totally I mean so I mean growing up uh, as a fan you know uh, and buying his stuff um, before I wrote the book I well at the time 92 was pretty much where I sort of fell out of love with Prince and I didn't really get it back till about 95 and I didn't really buy it when it, I sort of stopped buying it when I came out. It's partly because I was away at university, but and also just other, there are other musical trends that were so dramatic here. Um, you know, it was just such a big time for British music in a way. And, and Prince didn't really, I mean, there were lots of things going on. You know, there was sort of, you know, there was electronica uh, and hip hop, but there was also, you know, Britpop and, and uh, you know, all, all of that kind of thing going on. So um, there was a huge, and, you know, and Nirvana and a huge, you know, huge kind of, uh, boost in the alternative scene and Prince didn't really fit into any of any of those categories and he had sort of lost a, a, quite a lot of his fashionability at the time um and every time he was mentioned in the news it was just something it was just the symbol thing you know that was all that all that anyone said so watching that from the outside the way it was reported um it just held me at a distance from his from his music and then when um uh, I then went back and listened to the Gold Experience and and Chaos and Disorder um, and some of the other stuff and some of the unreleased stuff about that around that period. I mean, a lot of Prince fans, really sort of hardcore Prince fans, the two periods that they love are sort of eighty five to eighty eight, and then ninety two to ninety five. You know, they really love that period. The Gold Album in particular is it, you know, a lot of people really love that. Uh, I don't. I'm not as keen. On that era, as some as some people, it's not my favorite period. But looking back, I can see he was doing lots of interesting stuff, and there's an enormous amount of really good material in that period. Um, but but the media and and you know, to be fair, you know, the, also the way he was handling himself at that period just meant it didn't translate. So it's it it, it was it wasn't really until um, I heard Emancipation and just the sheer ambition of that, you know, the idea of him recording a three hour album that that really brought it back and but also at the time there was a sense that maybe prince was over you know that maybe this was 
maybe this was it, you know, um, because, you know, a lot of musicians, they have their 10 years of success and then that's it and they're gone, you know. So it felt like, OK, well, maybe maybe Prince was the 80s. Well, I, I mean, I also think it's interesting because uh, we haven't talked that much about it, but, um, you know, his image and the the multimedia aspects of it are, are so crucial. And, and it's another way that he's a groundbreaking artist. But the flip side of that is that, you know, public opinion is notoriously fickle. And I feel like uh, with the, the, the writing slave on his cheek and the, the change in, um, in name, it made someone who had maybe, you know, had still been the sex god of Purple Rain, albeit an increasingly eccentric one, into someone who is kind of perceived as, as a weirdo. And certainly coming up maybe, you know, half a decade, when I first became aware of Prince half a decade after that, it was Prince is this weirdo. And it wasn't until college when our, like the, the college movie theater screened Purple, Purple Rain. And I, I'd already liked Prince's music, but um, I was like, I never understood why he was considered like attra- attractive, like a sec, like how his sexuality functioned. And I saw Purple Rain, and I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I mean, the weirdo thing, definitely. You know, I mean, and and over here, particularly, you know, British, the British press is is pretty brutal. So you know, he was called Squiggle and. Uh, uh you know just a whole number of sort of silly names and you know is this it, they didn't take you know and, and there was this thing where they sent journalists uh a, a floppy disk which uh they had to put into their computers in order to be able to type the symbol on their on their screens and it caused all the computers to crash so you know nobody was very keen on on, on this but if you look at it in it as a cold business decision um it was genius, you know, so the, the idea was, or it was a genius decision, you know, because the idea was that, okay, uh, Warner Brothers owns everything that Prince releases. Um, I'm not Prince anymore, you know, so you don't own anything I do now, you know, and, and lots of other, not lots, but some other musicians followed, followed that. And there were other musicians who changed their name, like Puff Daddy to P. Diddy. And, um, you know, it was just, it was a business move. It was a strategic legal decision. Um, but that I think sort of went too far, really. But then again, you know, I mean, and then the symbol iconography and all of that is now a central part of his, his, uh, his, you know, his, his imagery. So if you if you talk about things like, um, you know, the branding uh, and and the t-shirts and the you know and the and the jewelry and everything else that came out of that, you know, it was uh, it, it was a decision that probably made him a lot of money over the years. I mean, it is really interesting because it, it's one of the things that um, you know one of the main stories we track uh we think a lot about um in this podcast is, is um uh, as d- record sales have declined and as forms of multimedia as the primary way to experience music have become increasingly central that in some ways like what a mu- the job of a musician as a creative as a creator has really changed and what's interesting is if you think about that late early 90s sorry that late 80s early 90s especially early 90s period you have a number of major artists like the beginnings of those tools start to come online and you've got a number of major artists, you know, Madonna, this is also the period of like Madonna's sex book and like um, acting, you know, these, these artists really expanding out into these multiple realms, but they're doing it within the structure of a music industry that is still firing on all cylinders and still able to produce enormous profits to bankroll these experiments. Yeah. 
And but at the same time, some people are pursuing independence via this. You know, so David Bowie is another example. You know, these early chat rooms where the the idea is that the musician is talking directly to their fans. Um, or Todd Rundgren, you know, where where he's releasing records that people can mix themselves. Uh, it's this it's this idea that's happening then, uh, particularly connected with the internet. Um, it's this idea that uh, somehow they're going to bypass the record labels, even though they are, as you say, often bankrolled by the labels. So it's about creating the new relationship. And people at that time, artists in particular, are enjoying it themselves. You know, they're liking the, the experience of getting out there and, and, and meeting with fans. You know, for years, these people haven't really enjoyed that process because it's either the fan club, which are obsessively into them, um, or it's just the people that come to their shows. Now they can have a direct direct uh, connection with people on the internet who are their fans, um, but they don't have to be, they're not necessarily obsessive fans. So they can, you know, they can start to see for the first time what it's like to have, well, not the first time, but, you know, it's an unusual new way of having a relationship with a fan. You know, it's not the case where you're, they're screaming at you and they're really excited. The fan is asking you, what were you thinking when you recorded that song? You know, so it, 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 and Prince really took that to an extreme. You know, he was always in the chat rooms and he loved the internet, but also to sort of jump forward, he was also the first person to reject the internet. You know, he would say the internet's completely over, it's dead. As soon as it became clear that actually he was going to lose a lot of, potentially lose a lot of money from this, um, he turned against it. Yeah. Um, and he, and he also, I mean, one of the things he did is he also was an early adopter of what has now become central to high-level superstars, which is he starts having these after shows for select groups of audiences that, correct me if I'm wrong, but are much more expensive to get into, right? No, not necessarily. It depends. I mean, for example, when he did the 21 Nights here in, in London, the uh, the main show was £31 and the after show was £25. Um, so not always. Um, it, I mean, everything with Prince, uh, you know, there, there are so many different ways. There are lots of different contradictions to it. So there have been after shows that have cost $3,000 to get in. So in some cases, you're right. But other ones where it's been $5, you know, so it, it, it totally depends on how he was feeling and what he was doing, you know, and, and, and to give him his credit, quite often the more expensive after shows were charity tickets. You know, he wanted to give money to 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 charities from that. There were, but again, as I say, it's sort of he, he with him there's always like lots of different things and they're often quite contradictory. So there were other periods in the mid nineties where he did have a kind of uh, a Chuck Berry type attitude where he just wanted bags of money handed to him. Um so basically he would use them for different different things. Sometimes it would be to, for status. Sometimes it would be just a quick injection of cash, you know, that he would be being paid a certain amount of money for the main show and would make more money uh, by doing an after show. But other times he was losing money, you know, towards the end of his career when he came over with, with the with the um, Third Eye Girl Band, he was doing shows for like £10 a time, you know, just purely because he just wanted to get as many people in as, as possible. But I do think there's something there about the... Um... It's simultaneously realizing that the potentials and threats of the internet, but simultaneously thinking about ways to to reshape the live experience to to make it more of a, like a like a quote unquote experience in, in the way that really feels 
like something that that every major touring star now does yeah but again he also sort of falls out, out of love with that idea so you know he started the new uh uh what they call the new music club i think it is um so he starts this this idea um of giving fans lots of access you know allowing them to see the rehearsals and allowing them to see the after shows allowing them get that that they all get um uh the front row seats at the at the gigs um but then he gets fed up with it you know he doesn't like it he, he suddenly thinks that he doesn't want to always play to the same people every night and he doesn't want to just have his fans there and he wants the casual audience as well and he wants to win over different people so you know again it's that it's that kind of uh, as often with prince you know a contradictory impulse you know he's he, he thinks oh it will be brilliant to give my fans all this access and all the rest of it and then he just thinks well actually it's a bit boring i don't want to do that anymore yeah no i mean again the, the number of ideas he cycles through is just extraordinary <laughs> yeah 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 no absolutely and often you know in the I mean, the 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 most infam infamous one was the the last website that he that he had, which was an absolute disaster, um, and he clearly lost interest in it in about a night. You know, it, 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 you know, he he, uh, I think some things didn't work. It didn't look the way he wanted them to right at the very beginning, and that was it. And you know, and so then it was sort of hanging around like an albatross for a year. But he really just couldn't care less about it. So yes, no, there are a lot of ideas that that died on the vine. And, and one of the things that um, one of his managers told me once was that he quite liked the idea of various people coming up to him with ideas. And sometimes he would go along with them and sometimes he wouldn't, but people wouldn't necessarily know that he hadn't gone along with them. So they'd be working for him on something that, that I mean, I suppose it's similar to a kind of a company having a research and development arm, but he did, you know, he quite often um, just gave up on ideas. Yeah. As you say, well, I mean, I found one of the really interesting, um, records and you you absolutely pan it <laughs> in the book <laughs> oh this will be fun go on yeah, yeah no is is uh is um uh, musicology from 20 2004 right um which is interesting to me because in some ways um that is prince doing a quote-unquote prince album <laughs> yeah definitely yeah um and it's fascinating to hear how he thinks of of himself and like, or how he thinks that the popular audience thinks of Prince. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that album and, um, and what, why you hate it and, sure. and what you think Prince may have been, been, been doing there. So for me, that was the period where I was getting really, again, getting worried, you know, so as a Prince fan, you're always waiting for the new album and there's always a hope that, this is the new direction. And then later on, you realize that maybe it wasn't the new direction and, and, and either you were wrong to get excited or you're wrong to get worried. But at the time when Musicology came out, it felt that he was shutting himself into a box because up, prior to that period, he'd been, he'd been one of the most exciting periods for me in watching him uh, and listening to him because he was, he was just doing masses of experimentation. He had that, the Rainbow Children album, he, which is all, all this stuff's being reissued now, actually. Uh, but he had his first live album. Um, he, the shows were incredible. Um, he was putting out songs all the time. You know, he had all the, all the computer stuff was up and running. He had his own radio show. He was just putting out an enormous amount of material sort of between sort of 2002 uh, there's about there's about seven or eight albums. Some of some of them, I mean, they all came out, but some of them were internet only. Things like um, C Note and uh, Expectation. He was moving into jazz. 
Uh, it just felt like he was just so exciting. And then all of that stopped overnight and we got musicology and a musicology tour where he, you know, it was, I mean, it was interesting in that he was, it was the first time he put the, the, the CD in the price of the concert ticket. But it felt as if he was saying, okay, that's over. This is the new Prince. And as you say, you know, it, we're going back to the old Prince, but we're kind of, it's kind of an imitation of that. I mean, one, one of my, a friend of mine has an interesting interpretation of that album is that he feels that that's an album that Prince has written after reading a book about him by someone else, you know, that he, it, it doesn't feel real. So when he talks about things like what we used to do back in the day and all of that kind of stuff, it maps quite closely onto chapters of books that have been written about him rather than feeling genuine. I mean, it's a bit, it's, just, it's, I made, I thought of this album recently because um, that new Bob Dylan song, uh, I Contain Multitudes, where he sings about um, those British bad boys, the Rolling Stones, you know, obviously, you know, Bob Dylan knows the Rolling Stones, so he could talk about them in many different ways, but he's using the, the received language about them. And it felt like with this album that Prince was doing a similar thing, that he was sort of burnishing his myth and talking about his myth. But it, I don't know, I just didn't have the kind of grit to it. It felt like, I mean, I much prefer 3121. And it just, I don't know, it just felt like, and I hated the cover art as well. You know, had that weird sort of, uh, 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 the that kind of computerized art that looked really, I don't know, it looked like a kind of Master P album or something. It was, it, it just wasn't, I didn't like that. Um, and I just, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, it's, it, but with every Prince album that I hate, there's always a possibility. I think at some future point, I'll come, I'll come round to it. Cause you know, they, they go through different eras, but certainly with that one, that that's the record that I've never really got a, I think probably all of, out of all of them, that's the one I've never really got a grip onto. You know, like there are albums that I think are worse than that, like um, Raven to the Joy Fantastic or uh, Planet Earth or um, uh, uh, some of the other. So, uh, I can't think of any other ones that come to mind, but um, there are, are there's about four or five other albums that I don't like as much. But with that one, I love musicology, that, that song, but the rest of the record, it, I don't know, I just there's something about it that I can't really get my head around. I don't really know what he wants to say with that record. So, I mean, what, what is the, you know, if that's Prince uh, writing a Prince album after reading a book about Prince, like, what is that, um, what is that sound? <laughs> well, it's kind of like a Xerox, isn't it? It's sort of, you know, it's him trying to say, it's the only time I think where he tries to sound like he used to sound and fails. You know, so, so, you know, and even, you know, even on the album when he puts, I mean, the, one of the things that seemed to me like a real admission of failure is where, you know, you know, you have that radio being tuned and then you have bits of If I Was Your Girlfriend and uh, on the album and you're hearing that and you're thinking, wow, there's such a difference between that music and the music you're producing now. Whereas something like 3121 or even some of the really late stuff like, you know, Hit and Run Phase 2, uh, Phase 1 rather, um, he's trying something different, you know, that he's experimenting and he's, 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 you know, maybe we know what the thing is, you know what the Prince sound is like, because every album sounds like Prince, you know, you can put on any, I mean, every Prince album rather, you can put on any Prince album and know it's him immediately. Um, but that's the only one where it feels like he's being a bit polite and, and, and sort of not trying to scare the horses and trying to, trying to write something that will be accepted and everything else he does isn't about being accepted you know it's the only record 
of his, I think, where there isn't something really peculiar on it where you go, what the hell is he thinking? Why, why is he doing that? You know, you can listen to that album and think, uh, you know, he really wants people to like, to like his music. But the weird thing is that he did also think that with 3121, that was him trying to compete with the, the charts. But for some reason, I know what it is, I think, is that 3121 was him trying to sound young and compete with the charts again. I think musicology was him trying to sound older and to try and win over the 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 kind of old fans. It was like he won. It was him trying to appeal to. I don't know how old he was at the time. Probably my age. You know, uh, maybe a bit younger. <laughs> it's frightening. Uh, but you know, it's him trying to get the kind of forty something Prince fans back. I felt, and I thought, no, you know, don't, yeah, don't, don't do that. And I think that the point of doesn't contain anything of that's peculiar is kind of funny especially because i feel like at this period of time in popular culture it, it's funny reading reading especially the, the last part of the book about which albums like made it into my consciousness and then which albums are kind of like for the cult so i feel like prince in this moment had these big moments where he's like i'm prince i play guitar really well um and i'm and i'm funky <laughs> and i'm funky yeah yeah um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the the two major uh, the guitar gently weeps performance, the Super Bowl performance, and then um, musicology as these kind of uh, kind of stabilizing moments, at least in in the broader pop sphere. That that instead of the the all the tendrils of influence and weirdness and unfinished projects of this eighties period, it's like no, no, there there is a Prince sound, and it is kind of this. Yeah, sure. I mean, what out of interest, what was the next? Was there another album after Musicology that made it into your consciousness, or was that like the last time that you you felt that? I mean, three one two one sort of, and then the Third Eyed Girl albums. Right, sure, yeah. I mean, that, that's really interesting. I mean, because you know, for the the thirty one twenty one, that 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 was the. I mean, I think you know, as I, I say in the book, you know, that was the the last really great one for me because it, but it, but it took a while. For it to get into my consciousness, you know, I mean, I, I, I say in the book about I went to see, I went to the sort of playback of the album and I heard it and I thought it's okay. It's not, you know, I liked it more than musicology, but I, I wasn't, I didn't think it's incredible. But then seeing the shows and hearing uh, that album seemed to get into the public consciousness and the videos and it felt like he really got behind it and really pushed that, that album. And I mean, and also you know again as i said about you know going to because he when he did the 21 nights over here in london you know i went to 19 of the main shows and 14 of the after shows and he was playing the songs from that album so much they really burned their way onto my mind and then maybe i mean yeah i think the same with with third eye girl again because seeing it seeing them live you know that often that often has that additional that additional impact um but for me the other later album or two albums that really uh stuck in my mind um were um Lotus Flower and MPLS Sound because partly because I went to LA to watch him play three three shows where on the same night where he did a different uh had a different band for each show and just the excitement of that. But also because again that he sort of played that music for a while and it saw even though it was I mean it was a weird business decision, you know, in that he gave it away or not gave it away, he sold it from Target shops and we don't have Target in England. So uh, you know people for a while they were really struggling to 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 get hold of the record you could only get it via target or his website you know it was crazy um but those i think that's and and hearing some of those songs live really really made it into my consciousness but although i like some of the later albums after that a lot of i I agree a lot of them didn't really break through but that, that i mean that's one of the things i think is that 
looking at that last period, almost every album had a weird means of distribution. So, you know, you had um, uh, Planet Earth was given away with a newspaper uh, and then the Target store thing that I mentioned. And Musicology, obviously, was the live show. Um, Planet Earth was given away at gigs. Um, the uh, And then subsequently you had um, uh, Tidal, you know, that he was giving, uh, you know, albums were suddenly being coming as downloads. So almost every album that he really, I think without exception, actually, oh, oh sorry, I forgot one, the um, uh, 2010, which again was a giveaway with the newspaper. So every album, he reached this point where he knew his albums weren't going to sell that much. So he wanted to get them into people's hands and he would do that via the show or via newspaper because people would say, okay, our news, we've got, we sell, uh, we've got a readership of 4 million people. Um, and that's going to, you know, if we put a copy of your, album in every newspaper that's going to reach more people than you're going to reach in any other way but the problem with doing that is that the the albums don't end up in people's consciousness because you know nobody really remembers or cares about a record that they got free with a newspaper you know i mean it's in their houses um potentially if they don't throw it away but they might not even have a cd player to play it on you know so it's sort of you know it 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 it, it wasn't really until he started doing stuff online with Tidal um, that he really reconnected again, I think. Yeah. And, and, and also, I feel like there, there's a, a, almost a problem um, that, that as he released so much music that in the kind of conditions of plenty that exist in online listening, you know, it's like when I got my Prince albums, I downloaded a BitTorrent of 18 Prince albums. And then it's like, where do you start? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely, and and you know, and, and and that's one of the the things that's that's um hard to replicate in a way. You know, for 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 my generation, a lot of the time was the scarcity of it. You know, that that you, you know, you might even have to sort of import a, a twelve inch or something. You know, that that you know these things were not necessarily easy to to come by. And, and you know, and at one period, you know, Prince um Prince had a shop you know, a shop in Camden here, you know, that he would sell stuff from, you know, uh, and then that would be incredibly frustrating because you go to the shop and he's selling really weird stuff and not, you know, candles and, 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 and contraceptives, weirdly, you know, he's not selling the records, you know, so, um, so it's quite, uh, weird. And, and, you know, and some of the MPG stuff like Exodus, that was always really hard to get hold of. And so, you know, every time you went to a record shop, you would look to see, is there a bootleg? Is there a new Prince album you haven't found out about? You know, it was much hard. It was much, I mean, I think that's part, that and the shows were partly what built such a strong relationship with, with, with his fans. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, and, and that's obviously very different. And But, you know, that's kind of also why I was writing my book was to sort of guide people through the, the incredibly big career, you know, and saying that, you know, maybe this album deserves a bit of attention or maybe there's stuff on here. There's a lot of the time, you know, I mean, I, as again, as I said in the book, you know, the albums during the 80s are all pretty good all the way through. You know, there's very little that, that you'd want to get rid of. But some of the later stuff, there might be one or two really amazing songs on an album or there might be uh, a really great bootleg connected to it or a great song that he played live at that time and never recorded or, um, you know, or alternative versions, you know, that, that when he released... Uh, um, Raven to the Joy Fantastic. He later put out another version called Raven to the Joy Fantastic. And at the time, that might seem as if it was sort of fairly obscure. But now, since his death, you know, they're putting out those albums again. So, um, alongside obviously all the digital stuff, uh, Sony and uh, also Warner Brothers and the state are all putting out 
physical stuff as well. So, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff out there. Yeah, no, it strikes me. It's, it's just fascinating. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's he suffered from a problem that a lot of major artists suffer from now. I mean, it might sound, sound weird, but if I was going to pick one person for this generation's prince, I would go with Young Thug. <laughs> no, that's not weird. Yeah, yeah. And similarly, a lot of his best music is was uncompleted or yeah yeah never really you know isn't on streaming uh all kinds of stuff one-off songs with other people pseudonyms uh the whole the whole nine and it's a challenge and i think going forward it's going to be a challenge to to keep how to think about catalog like that yeah i mean you know i mean like um future is another one isn't it you know sort of like 32 projects or something like that you know i mean eight studio albums and, and 32 or more uh side projects and then you know and then the whole thing with like with with artists like young thug and future and 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 drake and uh um you know other rappers of, of that sort of uh st- well differing styles but you know similar sort of approach to releasing stuff um you know the difference between what's a mixtape what's an album what's a you know what's an official release what isn't an official release what's a what's a uh just comes out as a download what you know um that in itself is it it, it, it you know it's it's it, it is very similar to what prince was doing okay i mean i think that's about all the questions i have um thank you thank you so much i really appreciate the, your, your generosity with your time here no problem i really enjoy talking to you thank you so much